Welcome to Originality, the podcast where we talk about creativity, its roots, and creative expression. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and I am always joined by the smart and talented Kay Tempest Bradford. to come up with a list of ways I can describe you that aren't repetitive because I want to always have some way to lead up to that that's just, you know, giving you the, uh, I don't even know the word, whatever, fill in the blank that's due. Well, then that means I'm going to have to come up with like a whole long list of words for you too. (laughs) This is going to be our project. It's going to be how we are creative. Okay. So, and listeners, no, I'm just kidding. So as I hope you know by now, the way that we do the show is uh, we think about people we know who do cool things or are creative in some way or have thoughts about creativity. And uh, either Tempest or I will go talk to that person um, a few days or a few weeks in advance, and then we'll come back here and talk about it together um, and share our thoughts with you, the listeners. Uh, This episode, I had the pleasure of talking to my friend and our fellow Relay FM podcaster, Micah Sargent. I'm going to let Micah introduce himself because, you know, I can't do him justice. Um, I am a senior editor at Mobile Nations. Mobile Nations is a group of sites uh, that talk about technology from Google to Apple to Windows and Microsoft to Tesla to everything in between. And I, most of my content is for a site called iMore, where I write about home automation, pet technology, and kind of the news that's happening now as well. Uh, I also am on too many podcasts. Um, (laughs) I do one with a uh, friend of the internet, Joe Steele, uh, called Unhelpful Suggestions, where we pretty much talk about anything. Joe's a really cool guy and has very strong opinions about things, and I adore that about him. Uh, and I do a podcast called Disruption, where we talk about the culture surrounding technology. And uh, it's, a, it's a call-in show, so people will sometimes leave their messages, and we really hit on some some tough topics uh, and then try to spice that up with some some fun stuff as well. So... I am in awe of Micah because as a tech journalist who isn't like a freelancer working for a lot of publications, I'm always interested in uh, the pace of creation when people are in that kind of situation because they have to write articles kind of all the time. It's not necessarily just about when inspiration hits. Yeah, that actually um, in in a former life, which it's not really all that former, but I am also a tech journalist. And so when I was listening to this interview with Mike, I was like, yep, recognize that. Yep, recognize that. (laughs) And and yes, it's people don't often see journalism as creativity, but a lot of aspects of it are. And I think tech journalism is one of the ones that where you have a little more creative free reign with certain things, but then there is that stuff where you're like, yes, but I have to sit down and write this article about this new phone that just came out and what's so important and different about it. And I don't have time for shenanigans. And so it's just got to get done. And then 
if you are, like I was for a long time, a staff writer for a magazine, then not only are you sitting down every day and you have to get out the blog posts about whatever's going on, you know, whatever news that came out of wherever manufacturer of things, and also the articles that you have to write that are going into the magazine back when print was a thing and the articles that you're going to write that are going to go on the web. Like there's all these different things that you have to just sit down and do every day. Um, And unlike how some fiction writing can work, although we'll talk a little bit more about this later uh, with, with journalism, it's, it's a lot about like putting your butt in that chair and and getting that article out uh, because you have a deadline. Yeah. And Micah talks about that and we'll play that. Yeah. And and one of the first things I asked him about was uh, being creative, about being creative on demand, right? Like you have to string words together. That's an act of creativity. Um, I, I think how well you do that, you know, maybe we can argue about later, but yeah, being creative on demand is just like this fascinating thing to me. Here's what Micah had to say about it. Being creative on demand is a funny funny thing because it is very close to being oxymoronic. Uh, When people think about creativity, they think about uh, people who seem to kind of create things from nothing and and come up with, uh, with ideas that obviously stem from somewhere, but it's, it's not always clear to the outside world and also to the people, this is like a, a secret, but creative people usually don't know where the heck they're getting their creative ideas from either, or don't always know at least. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know where my ideas come from. Nobody does. I don't think. They come from a factory in Schenectady. <laughs> I am still disappointed that that couldn't be our podcast title, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and and it's because that particular, the particular with Saw about where do ideas come from? There's an idea factory in Schenectady. <laughs> it comes from Harlan Ellison and, and Harlan Ellison would probably sue us. So yeah. we don't want to get sued or even spoken to by Harlan Ellison. <laughs> you can help it. And so, but yeah, but, but I've always actually really loved that line. You know, he would say that he'd say, you know, people come up to him and be like, where do you get your ideas from? And he'd say, an idea factory is connected to you. And he said, there are even some people who were like, and where is that exactly? Oh, no. Do you have the address? And he's like, that's not how this works. <laughs> and yeah, so it, it can, if you, if you're not sure, like if you don't feel like you know where your ideas come from, then it can seem like a very mysterious process of like somewhere out there, someone, you know, like the muse has brought this idea to me and has kissed my head. And now that idea is in my mind. And so, but it's not quite that. No, I think a lot of it is just showing up, right? Like I know that that we experience writer's block or creativity blocks, whether you're a writer or not. Um, But I, I really think that showing up is a lot of it and just practicing. I don't think creativity is nothing necessarily um, something that is like a lightning strike. You know, I think that it's something that you work at. And I would be interested to know if somebody did like, I don't know, brain scans like every day and they sat down to write every day and they had brain scans done, how that would change over time. Like just from the sit, the, the act of sitting down and creating a little bit of something, if there would be like a neuropathway, something or other that could be traced. I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a lot of validity to that. The author Samuel Delaney wrote in his book about writing that 
writing is an addiction, but it is an addiction that's easily kicked. So he suggests that authors write every day because he says, you know, the more you do that, if you write every day, then you will become addicted to it and you will want want it more and more and more. Now, there is there are some conversations that can be had about whether or not write every day is a really good sort of edict mm-hmm. to put down on writers. But it is something that a lot of different artistic disciplines share. You know, if you're a musician, then there are a lot of days in a row that you are playing those scales or learning that fingering or singing, you know, that same song over and over again. You're an artist, you're sketching all the time. Um, and then, you know, you're painting or you're, you're sculpting or you're doing whatever. Uh, you're, you're dancing, got to get that plie down and you're doing it every day, practice and, and all. So there is something to it. Practice is not a thing that is emphasized as much in writing as it is in other arts. Uh, something that I have a real problem with and uh, which I'll probably talk about in another podcast. But there is something to that. Even if you if you are saying, okay, I'm going to write every day, but I'm not necessarily going to sit down and like write my thousand words, you know, that or whatever your major goal is for getting stuff done every day. I am a big proponent of do a 10 minute exercise. And if that is the only writing you do that day, well, but you did some writing and writing exercises, even if they don't end up as part of your word count or whatever, that that still, it keeps up the addiction, let's say. Yeah. And, um, that's something that that Micah and I talked about a little bit too, is like on those days where you don't feel like you can sit down and write or you can stand up and work on your plies or you can, you know, whatever that thing is for you, where you, you just can't sketch for whatever reason. Like, how do you work through that? Um, and let's hear what Micah had to say. You know, it's not always, I think for some people, there are people who can, you know, get something done and they're fine afterward and like they were able to to get it done. But for me, my whole persona like acts against me <laughs> where I will get so easily distracted and I will want to get up and uh, go grab a drink of water or look at Twitter or do anything except write this next sentence because gosh darn it, I just don't want to do this right now. And I... I think of that, that there's an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants, of all things, where Plankton, who is the competitor, wins uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. And SpongeBob does not want to make any food for Plankton. And Plankton does everything in his power. He buys him all these nice things and makes him comfortable and gets him food and does all this stuff. And it's the equivalent of like a writer buying very nice pins and hoping that that will be the thing that gets them to write. And he ends up not doing it. So Plankton puts his head and his brain into a robot so that he can make the Krabby Patty still. And the robot does the same thing. I don't want to make this. It's it's not that that SpongeBob SquarePants was the thing that caused it. It's just, it's who he is. And so whether you put his brain in a robot or you put it back into his body, he's still not going to get the thing done. So yeah, there are times where I just have to, you know, push eventually does come to shove and you know that you just have to get something done because your livelihood depends on it. And that's where creation is a slog and it's not as fun. (laughs) I love, um, so Micah occasionally does a cartoon a podcast about cartoons. So I do appreciate that I came back to SpongeBob SquarePants. I mean, we doesn't everything though? <laughs> doesn't everything come back to SpongeBob? 
I, I feel it. like there are a lot of life lessons going on in SpongeBob. Oh, if you can make it through it, though. My gosh. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but I totally get that feeling that like, ugh. <laughs> Can I just, can I go do anything else right now, please? I don't know what you're talking about. No, actually, that's <laughs> my entire, entire writing my life. life. I will say, right. And I will say that, like, there were times, I find writing nonfiction somewhat easier than writing fiction. And that's partially because a lot of the nonfiction I write is just basically the way that I talk. And so I just boom, 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 like it's coming out sometimes okay but with fiction i'm not writing like i talk i'm always trying to craft it to to do what i wanted to do to make it better to not have like the same sort of sentence structure all the time and and to use the better word and all that and so sometimes writing fiction is like pulling teeth and i just want to be like why why god why um but sometimes it would happen that way with nonfiction writing and that was often because of well, there are a lot of factors, but when I was a tech journalist, like that's when it was the worst because, okay, when you <laughs> are, you know, supposed to be covering like a tr- a show, a trade show, like the Consumer Electronics Show, CES, or um, the release, you've gone to some place for the release of some product, right? And you have to sit there and and they're like, look at our product. It does this. It does that. And then you also like get a press release and it has all the same things they just said um, with maybe a little bit of extra data. And you have to sit there and try to make that into a blog post that is going to make people come to your website to read the blog post and not that other person's website who's literally sitting next to you and writing about the same stuff that you were writing about. <sighs> I found those that writing to be the hardest because I was so disengaged with it. I was like, why do we care? Why do we care that this one has like 4.3 inch screen instead of a 4.2 inch screen and two extra pixels and one extra megapixel and the camera in the rear and the camera in the front has the thing that like, oh my God. (laughs) And, but that's, that is the bread and butter uh, when you are a tech journalist like that, you know, it's, it's very important to be able to do that and to be able to sit down and get it done. The other thing that used to be fun for me, but stopped being fun and is why I really stopped doing tech journalism was writing reviews. There is a certain amount of creativity that comes in writing reviews. And and I think Micah is going to talk a little bit more about this later, so I won't go too deep into it now. But sometimes I would find this joy in being able to come up with a ridiculous sentence to explain a mundane but necessary thing about <laughs> a laptop. Um, I used to work at Laptop Magazine, which is now part of Tom's Guide, and Cherie L. Smith was one of my buddies at the magazine, and we used to like spend a lot of time figuring out like how we could one up each other in the description of <laughs> what the screen looked like. We'd be like, when I was watching the trailer for Batman versus Superman, the stips, the stipulations on Superman's outfit stood out deeply, and the reds <laughs> were the red of a red sun rising. It's like we would just we would do these ridiculous descriptions of what was going on, or even like we were talking about the audio as I was listening to Bowling for Soup, the bass <laughs> of the song. Oh, that but that was a lot of fun for us because writing reviews of things is really tedious mm-hmm. because a lot of it is just listing stuff, but you have to write it in such a way that it doesn't seem like you're just listing information that you could probably look up and interpret from the specs anyway. 
So there's a person kind of famous in the Apple-centric community who used to write, his name's John Syracuse. He also has a show on Relay FM. Um, but he's kind of got like this, this little following, not a little following. He's got this big following because he used to write reviews for Mac OS, uh, not, yeah, for Mac OS 10. Um, and they were like a hundred pages long <laughs> and like deep. What? <laughs> yeah, no, like <laughs> they were very, very, very long, very in depth. Um, but one of his things is he would put a lot of pop, pop culture references in them. And so a game was to see how many pop culture references people would get. Um, it was kind of a, a thing, a, a game that he played with himself. And as far as I know, nobody got all of them. Um, but that's something that he did to kind of entertain himself as he was writing these very very, very thorough in-depth reviews, which he did from, I think, A Place of Love. Um, but yeah, he'd just throw in pop culture references to see who was paying attention and who would get them. So uh, that's, that's Kudos awesome. to him. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a neat guy. Um, yeah, but, but I think a, a theme is just like kind of sitting down and pushing through things that you don't always want to do. And let's let Micah talk about that a little bit now. When it comes to being able to kind of push through a creative block, I I do think that this is a I think that that's the skill of being able to push through, uh, or well maybe not skill the the action of pushing through is going to be different for different types of work and different careers. I think that it is far more difficult for an author who is working on their own book to be able to uh, just say, doggone it, I got to get this finished and push through. Um, versus someone who, in you know, in some cases for me, like if I'm writing a, a help or a how-to article, there are just some help and how-to articles that I don't really care about at all, and I can't seem to get in the mood. Uh, most of the most of the stuff that I do, I really I've either pitched it myself or it's on topics that I very much care about. Like I said, home automation and things like that. But every once in a while, I will come across something, or uh, one of our site editors will come across something that uh, we're missing and might you know hit me up because other people are doing other things. Say, hey, can you get can you write this? And of course, I'm going to do that. That's part of my job, but. Uh, it, you can tell the difference between a germ-activated article from me and an article that the germ was not activated. Um, apparently, I am beer, and I put yeast into my brain, and it ferments, and that's how creativity works. Okay, I've got to pause that for just a second to explain the germ-activated thing. So earlier in our conversation, Micah was talking about like the germs of inspiration hitting his brain and kind of growing into things, uh, growing into articles or, or, or whatever that may be. So that's an explanation for that reference. Now I'm going to continue the clip. That's all you need. The podcast is over. Uh, no, <laughs> but, um, I, the, the, the germ activated article is full of, of witty quips and like you, I hope, I hope that the person, they have fun reading it because they can feel like my presence there. Whereas an article that is just like, just make it happen. All that's happening there is the research phase of going and finding, you know, documentation that shows how something has to be done and, uh, you know, going and trying out the product to make sure that the, the support article is accurate and that it actually does work how it's supposed to, and then spitting that all out. And, you know, it's, it's very structured, it's very skeleton, it's very um, base help, whereas the – and so I think like that that is that is the – 
when push comes to shove option, shove still has to happen. And when shove happens, then it's just the skeleton of a thing. Yeah. And I I think we've all felt that kind of, um, sometimes you just got to do a thing because you got to do it and you remind yourself, yeah, I gotta, I gotta pay rent or buy food or, you know, take my cat to the vet or whatever. Yeah. And, and actually depending on the author that you're talking to, Fiction authors also have that um, because some of them are either trying to make it as full-time authors and therefore not have any other jobs or they have reached that point and they want to maintain it. And so in order to do that, they have to be able to write, to hit their deadlines and to line it up in such a way so that like, you know, okay, I've written this book and now I'm getting the copy edits back and you get a certain amount of money when you turn in the book, a certain amount of money when you have finished the edits, a certain amount of money when the thing comes out, you know, da 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 on, on, on down the line. But you're not just thinking about like that one book that's about to come out mm-hmm. now. You're thinking about the next book that's coming out after that and being sure that all of it lines up in such a way so that you get money so that you can live. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, for, for some of those authors, it can be like that where they have to think, I just have to get this done. Like there are a couple of authors who would poo-poo the idea of the muse or being struck by inspiration. And that's when you write because they're like, yeah, if I wait until I'm struck by inspiration, I starve in the streets. Yeah. So I have to figure out ways to be able to get the words on the page in a consistent manner so that I can get it done. Yeah. I was, as you were talking, I was thinking of John Scalzi who, um, I mean, he's not going to starve on the streets at any point in time. Um, maybe in his distant past, that was something, but he got a, a very big contract with tour for something like, I think 13 novels over a decade or something like that. And so when you're talking about kind of that cadence of getting stuff out, I feel like that's something that that John Scalzi has worked on very hard and has uh, definitely profited from. Like he's just, he's able to sit down and most days he's able to spit out however many words and he just gets it done. It seems like, um, you know, I don't know him personally, but I follow him on Twitter and kind of see that like, yep, hit my thousand words for the day. I'm done. Uh, which is is good for him um, now that he's not in kind of dire straits, life and death type situations. Yes. And, you know, with, with Scalzi, part of that was his ability to to do a lot of writing um, and, and to put himself on a schedule. A lot of that also, though, comes from his privilege and mm-hmm. not even just like privileges. Oh, oh, he's a white man. But the fact that, you know, where he lived didn't necessarily costs a lot of money right. to live there um that he already had like a lot of different professional co- connections that allowed him to move into a freelance space that was where the the work was steady and the money was good yep and so he was able to get to that place but that all said even with all of those things he still had to put in the work. He still had to produce on a regular basis. He still had to produce things that his editor liked enough to to accept so that they could publish it and that readers would read and buy so they would buy enough that they would want to buy his next thing. So this is not to say that, like, John Scalzi is only where he is because he's a white dude, um, but he has also acknowledged that, like, yep. that's part of it, but then on top of that, he he also has to do this amount of work. The... The thing, though, that starts to get a little, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, complicated, is when you talk about people who 
can't necessarily always put the writing first or or sit down and put their butt in the chair and like get into a space where they can write. Because sometimes it's not necessarily about inspiration or lack of inspiration. It's about a, a space, a lack of space for you to be able to put yourself in a place where you can get your words down the page. You know, this is why there are a lot of mothers who they're like, I can't do this because I have to take care of this many children. I have to take care of, or even people who have elderly parents that they're caring for, or people who have jobs that basically wear them out. And so when they come home at night, they only have the energy to sleep and to eat. And that's a reality. Um, So, uh, you know, part of it is having the space, having the time, having the energy being a person who is of good health Mm -hmm. because when you don't have good mental health that makes it really hard to write I've experienced that one um you know a lot of factors have to come into play but I think that part of it is if you can find that place where you can figure out what are your best what is the best situation where you can produce words that is a really good thing to know so that when you can be in that situation you can you can do it. Yeah. There's um there's an article on the Sifwa blog, but it wasn't first published on the Sifwa blog. I'm gonna hold on. Check. Do, do. I have to check the name of the person. Okay. Um, it's written by author Rachel Aaron, and it's called "How I Went from Writing Two Thousand Words a Day to Writing Ten Thousand Words a Day." Now you're gonna find a lot of people what? who have. <laughs> who have a lot of problems with the idea of writing 10,000 words in one day. They'll be like, oh, those words will all be terrible and that's hack writing and da 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 Put that aside for just two seconds as because the thing that that post is about is not so much that you have to be a person who writes 10,000 words a day. What Rachel is writing about is the system that she created for herself to allow her to produce the maximum amount of words that she could produce in a day. And to do that every day and to be able to figure out like her best strategy for getting that done. And it's very methodical, like her going through and being like, this is the problem that I was encountering. And so I interrogated that problem and I came up with the solution and I was able to set that problem aside. Then I encountered this problem. So I interrogated that problem and worked out a solution and set that aside. And so a lot of the techniques that she talks about in that blog post are all things, I've used many of them, they're all things that anyone can do so that when they sit down to write, they can produce the amount of words that they can produce. Maybe that's 750 words or 500 or, you know, 20, a whatever. A paragraph. That's me. Like, I'm like, I wrote a paragraph today. I am amazing. There you go. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter how many words it is. It doesn't have to be 10,000, but just as, as long as it's like the the work that you can do. Um, they also, they, I don't know who this thing is, but I have heard people talking about also how your brain all likes rituals. Mm-hmm. And so if when you sit down to write, you're like, I'm sitting down in this place and I have this cup full of this beverage and I do this action and then I can like put my my brain is like, oh, these are all the things that happen when we're about to write. Cool. I'm putting myself in that place. Boom. I'm going to do it. Yeah. The same for going to bed. Like that sounds like less profound, but like as a person who has insomnia, one of the things I have to do is I do things in a certain order every night 
because it's like, hey, hey, brain, it's time for you to shut up now because we need to go to sleep. But it's kind of the same, um, same with writing, like, hey, you know, self-doubting brain is really the thing that I need to shut down um, because the things that I do are like, does this really have value? Should I be spending my time doing this? Can I proclaim that I am an expert on something like creativity or marketing your, you know, Apple or iOS app or, you know, uh, writing uh, what is your user experience in in your writing? Like, what does that look like? Um, like, am I really qualified? Like, I have to shut that up. I have to do things to make that be quiet because if I don't, I don't get anything done at all, ever. And I'm still working through that. I'm still very uh, not as productive as I need to be because um, need slash want because I still have that. Um, those those doubts. And it's still something that I'm working on every day to figure out what I need to do. Yeah, that doubting mind is real. Like the internal editor is real <sighs> little voice inside your head. And I think it's complicated by a lot of different things. I mean, people of all different kinds have that internal editor, have those internal doubts. But I think that it can be worse for women in our patriarchal culture simply because we're also told that there are certain things that we shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, just the idea of, and I was thinking about this uh, in, when we were going through a different episode, um, thinking about Nisi Shawl and how I asked her to tell me what was awesome about herself. And she said, ah, where do I even start? There are so many things. I loved that. And, <laughs> and I was thinking, yes, no, that's very true. There are so many things, but it's seen as uncouth or or incorrect for a woman, especially. I mean, some folks might say a person, but I really do think that it's a woman. It's incorrect for a woman to be like, yes, I'm awesome. La la. I'm so amazing. Where do I even begin? But sometimes you need to do that. Sometimes you need to have that attitude of, yes, I'm awesome and I can do this. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I share my writing with a limited number of people because it allows me because then other people are like, this is what's really great about what's going on here. And then I can say to myself, yes, that is really great about what's going on here. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. doesn't mean I don't need to, to edit and do things. But just that small act of being able to say to myself, what I'm writing, there are aspects of it that are really great. And if I come back to it later and I need to edit, which I do, and I need to polish, which I definitely do, <laughs> it's okay because what I'm writing is there's still the seed of like awesomeness there. Mm -hmm. And, and I have to just remind myself of that. Yeah. And, um, I, I agree with all of that. And especially I'm trying to start a business, a uh, kind of a consulting slash, um, I don't know, course or book. I don't know what the product is actually going to end up looking like. Um, but it is in tech and, um, you know, women in tech, Women face adversity everywhere. Women in tech um, face adversity. And I don't know if it's better or worse than in other professions because I've been in tech, you know, my entire adult life. But uh, it, it's it's something that I actively have to fight about, fight, uh, fight myself about, I guess. And it's something that, like, I'm constantly seeking validation for from, from people around me who are kind of involved in what I do. And it's, it's good to be able to have that, to have that validation. Um, and this kind of leads us into another thing that Micah and I talked about, which was kind of, um, living your life out loud online, um, which is something that, um, 
that I definitely do, Tempest, I would say that you do to an extent too. Um, but something that Micah and I talked about was kind of that uh, responsibility of personality and and what you what you put out in the world. Um, and I'm going to play what he had to say, and then we'll we'll talk about it a little bit. It warms my heart uh, to know that you know people have been able to be inspired um, to to let's say for example to to come out to their family members or to whomever they are you know trying to share that bit of themselves with or uh just to to they've smiled because of something that I've said or what have you of course those things feel good but there are also times where I think you know I'm really I'm having a really cruddy day and maybe it's a cruddy week or it's a cruddy month and or it's a cruddy two months whatever what have you and I have, feel like I have an obligation. And again, I think that it's you know self-inflicted, but I feel like I have an obligation to continue to be that person uh, who is there for others in in being you know the the happy-go-lucky character. Because what happens if the day that I am feeling down and want to talk about feeling down is also the day that someone else is feeling down and they really needed that person there to be the happy-go-lucky person and I wasn't there for them. That would suck. Um, and it's something that, you know, I, I think about a lot. And that that is where I think, like, being a personality or or performing on the internet as this person who, who finds so many things cool and who, you know, is finding silver linings and is... Um, uh, Oh, you know, everything's going right in their life. Uh, that is, that could be dangerous on multiple levels because it can be dangerous to the person themselves who might have, you know, self-inflicted uh, reasons to continue to do that and to perform that. But then also it's, it's dangerous because it's not true. And when people see like, well, how does this person just always get to be happy and they don't have down days. Like how, how is that? I feel like I have down days regularly and how does this person get to just never, never feel down? So, wow. You know, it's, it's got multiple layers and it's got, um, different pitfalls that exist with, with performance. And it has me wondering lately, at least, which is better. Is it better to be the person that you know, someone can count on to, to be the smiler with the bright eyes, or is it better to, when you're feeling down, share that you're feeling down and, you know, show that even those with maybe a sunny disposition, um, or whatever is the opposite of a chip on their shoulder, uh, they can still have, have bad days and can still, you know, not, not feel great or be going through things. So Tempest, what are your thoughts? I have a lot of complicated thoughts about this, yeah. but I identify a lot with what he's talking about because, you know, being a person who is sort of like, I'm I'm a very, very minor, like, person who is known amongst people in a specific community. Right. <laughs> so, like, I'm public, but it's not like I'm an actual celebrity. But there are a lot of people who know who I am, who have known who I am for a very long time. And I don't know who they are because they are just out there on the Internet and they are not people that, that I know or interact with. So there's like a weird aspect of that. And a lot of authors actually deal with that now, especially now that 
we have so much social media and people have a blog and there's, you know, we always have discussions about is that, you know, the whole thing about, oh, the author is dead. That was the old theory that, you know, once you wrote your thing and you put it out into the world, the author is dead. And all that matters is the reader's interaction with the book and their reaction to the book. But now, since you can now contact the author and be like, what did you mean? The author is no longer dead. (laughs) And... So it creates a sort of different dynamic between, you know, what's going on between the author and the audience, and then also sometimes can create expectations. Yes, like, why aren't you being the chipper person who's telling us about recipes and and your great day and and your fabulous life? You know, why are you over there, like, not doing that right now? Um, Then it also creates situations where you have, like, people screaming at George R.R. Martin on Twitter all the time saying, why haven't you written the last Game of Thrones book, you lazy slob? And that's a a situation that is not okay on a lot of different levels. Um, I mean, one thing I will say is that there are some authors who have decided to move through the sort of, like, social out loud landscape by being very real about everything in their life. Like, so when they do have down times, they are, they, they talk about that. And when they do have up times, they talk about that. The person that comes to mind the most when it comes to this is the author, Catherine M. Valenti. So she's the author of the series of books that began with The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making. And that's still one of my favorite books of hers. I But I really fell in love with the Orphan's Tales duology. Those were the first books of hers that I read, but she's written many, many books. And I've also known Kat for a very long time, and I knew her for even longer, like quote unquote knew her on the internet because she does, she did and still has, does she still have her LJ? her live journal, but that's that's where I started following her. But she, for a long time, had a live journal and she, for a long time before live journal became a thing, was like on another online uh, sort of forum thing where, where she blogged and whatnot. And, and she's just very, sort of very open about things. There are still some things that she keeps private. Like there, you know, it's not necessarily just all surface what's on her live journal. It's a little bit deeper than the surface, but it's not like the very depths of her soul at all times. But she's just very honest about a lot of things that are going on with her. And that has earned her a lot of very, very loyal fans because not only are these people who are reading her books and loving her books, but they're looking at the posts that she puts out there and the things that she talks about in her life and and they're identifying with her and they're feeling like they really know her and that creates a connection with them that makes them very loyal, that makes them want to read her work, that makes them want to like go out and talk about her work and and just, it, it's a whole thing. It's a whole system. But it then also causes some people to be really jealous because, you know, for some people they need their artists to be at a distance or else they're not happy. They need to believe that people who create really great art that is published or put on, you know, put in galleries or or put on a stage somewhere are like these superhuman giants of genius people that are not like you and me. And so whenever they are, whenever they come across somebody who sort of dissipates that fiction, then they get petty and jealous. And I have I have seen some petty jealousy about some people on the internet, but I have rarely seen petty jealousy the way that I have seen it aimed at Catherine Valenti. Ugh. 
you know, it's just a thing. And and part of it is a result of the fact that she she is human on the internet. So I'm not saying like, oh, it's not her fault or anything, but it's like the way that she has chosen to interact with the world has caused some people to act in certain ways that are not okay. And so this is why there are some authors and other artists of of different kinds who then only put out what is positive or whatever, not just because they're trying to craft an image, but because they are trying to protect themselves from the kind of people who would, you know, just be nasty. I know for myself, part of the reason why I I am not as open and free on the internet as I used to be is because of the people who who take great joy and spend a lot of time attacking me. And sometimes I really sit and think about whether or not I want to share that I'm having a bad time, that I'm struggling that things aren't going well, that I need help because I'm like, those people will just like take that and use it against me. Yep. And there are some ways in which I need to be strong for the other people who I, who see me as somebody who's speaking for them because I'm willing to be like, no, that racism is some nonsense and I'm not going to have it. And no, that sexism is nonsense and I'm not going to have it. So in some ways, like I have to be the strong one who doesn't ever show you know, the chinks in the armor because then like people will just pounce on it. So, I, you know, it, that all goes into it. But on a less scary and annoying note, <laughs> um, I also, I do think that sometimes artists need to be a little bit more transparent about the process by which their art gets out into the world because it can seem very mysterious and like, you know, only metahumans are able to do this because no, it's, it's a lot of slogging. It's a lot of just, you know, doing a lot of really hard work that nobody sees and nobody recognizes and nobody ever will recognize because they're just looking for the finished project product. And it's like, how did it get there? How many rejections did you have to go through? How many people did you have to like get to beta read the thing? And, you know, this is true for like all different forms of art. And sometimes it, it seems like it would be especially for other artists who haven't made it yet to be able to see that it's not a magical process, that there's like all this other stuff behind it that would be nice. But again, if you do that as an artist, you run the risk of all that other stuff. But, you know, sometimes you reach a point where you can do that as an artist, like Neil Gaiman, like famously, and then he like turned into a book. But I remember like he started a blog. I don't know if like that was the first time he had a blog or whatever, but he started a blog to chronicle the process of getting American Gods published. And that was actually very valuable for a lot of people to see what it was that Neil Gaiman had to go through and all the different steps and whatnot from, you know, when he was done with the book to when it was actually published. Um, that was very useful, very instructive. Um, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna pause for a second and say that I have a huge crush on Neil Gaiman, and I'll just leave it there. Um, but yeah, that's all. Um, you know, I I go through this the same struggle that that Micah goes through. Um, I think I'm. A, I was gonna say I think I'm a less empathetic person than Micah is, but I don't necessarily think that's true. Uh, but I I do especially on Twitter, I kind of live my life out loud. I don't put everything on Twitter. I don't say everything I'm thinking, believe it or not. I don't say everything that I'm thinking on Twitter. Um, I know, right? But 
but I've always, um, my mom kind of laments that growing up, I, I did what I wanted to do and I didn't, I, I did it whether that was the popular thing or not, or whether it would, it would bring, uh, scorn upon me and my house or not. Like I just, I've always done my thing. Um, and I never, I wouldn't say I never try to fit in, but I maybe don't try to fit in as much as other people have. And I don't know why it's just how I am. Um, so I've kind of taken that on as a thing, like a little bit of a badge of honor. And also a thing that it's like, um, I'm a person who suffers from chronic illness. Um, I have autoimmune diseases. Uh, I, I feel bad a lot of days. I have really severe seasonal allergies. I mean, debilitating seasonal allergies. People hear seasonal allergies and they're like, whatever. And it's like, no, really, I can't get out of bed. It's like being sick. And I've, I've, I have anxiety. I've struggled with depression at, at points and situations in my life. Like, and these are all things that I talk about pretty candidly. There are things I don't talk about. I've been, I've been, um, harassed and abused in ways that it, um, and by people who I will not talk about. Like I just don't, um, because that's too far. So I do have lines, but at this point in my life and for the audience I have, I am comfortable being who I am. And there have been days where I've been like, hey, send me, send me cute animal pictures. I'm having a bad day. And I get cute animal pictures and it's amazing. Um, that might change. Um, you know, I get, I get more Twitter followers every day. My podcast audiences grow, um, maybe not every day, but they grow. And as more people become aware of me, I might choose to be more insular, um, just as responsive, um, the volume of stuff that happens. But I will say that it's not my responsibility. It is not my burden to make strangers on the internet feel good. And that might not be, Amen. that might not be, yeah, that might not be, I don't know, might not be a popular thing to say, but my responsibility is to live my life and to stand up for what I believe is right and to stand up for myself in ways that are authentic to me and to stand up for, for people and causes I believe in, in a way that is authentic to me, um, with their guidance. Like I'm not going (laughs) to speak for people, but I, I will, um, elevate their voices as I can. And, um, if that brings somebody down, like, yeah, of course I don't want that to happen, but it's not going to stop me from living an authentic life. And um, I recognize that that's a privilege in a lot of ways, but it's also just kind of stubbornness on my behalf too. So I don't, I don't know that that's helpful to Micah or anyone else who might be feeling that, but um, that's where I am at this point in my life and this point in my, my journey of whatever this journey is. I'm down with all of that. Um... And and I definitely agree. You you have to, there are a lot of things to balance out, but in the end, a lot of it has to be about what what is safe and good for you um, because self-care is important too. Self-care is so important for artists. Yeah. It's so important. And, you know, sometimes that, that energy that you spend trying to, trying to navigate those waters of like, what what the people out there are thinking or are needing from you and what you think or need then messes with the thing that makes them want to keep following you in the first place, which is the the art that you're producing. Um I feel like that 
that's the thing I try to keep in mind. Um, Cause you know, I don't want to be selfish, but I also don't want to be so selfless that I end up like the end of the giving tree where I'm just like a stump. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Some guy's just yeah. sitting on me and he's like, well, you gave me everything. Yep. Like now I'm going to sit on your stump. Like, Oh God. Thanks, dude. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. So it, it, it's a super subjective thing, but I will say if you're not comfortable with what you're doing and the way you're presenting yourself, you know, that's when you change things. But I get messages from, from, from white men all the time. And I'm so sorry if you're a white man, but like, sometimes I generalize on Twitter about white men and, uh, I hurt feelings and people stop following me. Friends have stopped following me. That is 100% okay. Like that is, that is fine. They need to do what they need to do to, to take care of themselves. And I need to do what I need to do to take care of me. And no, not all white men are bad. I'm, I'm not saying that, but it's 140 characters, people. We got we to gotta make some compromises. Right. So kind of putting that social media back on the back burner again, let's get back to talking about creativity. And uh, Micah had some things to say about kind of getting in, getting in the zone or uh, what some people call like creative flow, that ability for uh, that moment when things are just falling into place for you creativity. Let's hear what he had to say. I get a buzz and a joy and a really good feeling out of getting into the flow. Uh, another friend of the internet, her name's Georgia Dow, and she is a psychotherapist. And she talks about flow uh, and creative flow and how powerful it is. And when I'm writing things that have to be written now, I get into that flow. I feel really good. And I know that I've got to hit this deadline because people out there don't know about this yet. And I want to be the one that gets to tell them about it. So I think there is a certain level of arrogance in that, to be honest. I think there's a, a part of me like... I, I would say I'm not a very competitive person, but they're, they're like maybe like three tiny little competitive uh, germs inside my brain. And they, <laughs> they certainly become active in, in this situation. And like competitive Micah springs forth and he wants to be the one that gets to tell you about this cool thing that just, you know, came out on the Internet. I love how he's he's talking about um, the creative flow as relates to the journalistic or the the tech writing process, because. I feel like it is a definitely a different flow for me when I'm doing that versus when I'm flowing for fiction. So but when you, when I would do tech journalism, there would be that nice space that you would get into where you're just like, I'm just going to write this, this terrible thing. I'm going to rewrite this press release to make it sound like I wrote this thing and, and that's what I'm going to do. And sometimes it would be nice. I But once I started getting into that flow, one of the things I noticed, and I used to, before I became a, a tech writer... I used to be like, why do journalists rely on puns so much? And now I know because you just have to like write something. And so puns just flow out of you and you're like, oh, that was terrible. Or even I used to wonder why sometimes there would, for instance, if you are writing about Apple computer, right? And and people would be like, an Apple computer did this, an Apple computer did that, blah, blah. Sometimes it would be like the Cupertino company or something out of Cupertino today. And I'm like, what the heck is that about? Like, why would you even, like what? Just because they're in that place doesn't mean they have anything to do with it. But then I realized it's because you can't just keep saying Apple, Apple, mm -hmm. Apple, Apple, Apple. You feel like you're repeating yourself. And so I would do that. I would be like, the Cupertino company spokesperson <laughs> said today, and I'm like, oh, this is terrible. But these are the things that happen when I would get into that that journalism flow. Um, 
and and also like I said, like trying to one up the people as we're talking about like the how how good the screen looked in comparison to other screens that were twenty five microns less good. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of creative flow when it comes to fiction, this goes back a little bit to what we were talking about before, where um sometimes you just have to like get your get your butt in the chair and like get those words out and whatever. And I I have reached moments where I have had a really good creative flow. And, you know, most of those times have not necessarily been about like, oh, the inspiration, it, it came down from heaven and touched me. It was because <laughs> I like sat down and and did my ritual and got in my spaces and I figured out wh- what my best writing conditions were so that I could put myself into a mindset where I could be like, I can do this. I can finish the scene. I can finish this chapter. I can do whatever. So. I because like I have a lot of very specific pain points. I'm really bad at beginning scenes, even if I know what's happening in the scene. Like it takes me forever to figure out how to begin the scene. But once I've begun the scene, I'm like in it and I can do it. But yeah, finding that place that's that's so important for for being able to just get it all out in a timely manner. So beginnings are your your hard part. Conclusions are mine. Like I just stop writing. I'm like I guess I'm done now. So. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> so Tempest, I'm curious because you live a, I guess I would call it, I don't know what you call it, but I would call it a semi-nomadic life where you kind of uh, have structured li- your life in such a way that you have the freedom to kind of go from city to city and, and kind of live for, you know, however long, several weeks or months at a time. And I'm curious, um, what does ritual look like for you when you're changing scenery so frequently? Well, for me, I've discovered that there are certain things that I need to have, but they're not necessarily tied to place. Um, I used to think that I couldn't write inside the house, that I always had to go out to a cafe. And I used to think that that was because I really fed off of the energy of other people or like the buzz of the cafe. And that's actually a real thing. Like going out into public places to do things, you know, you sort of like pick up the vibe from places. But really what it is, is that there are certain cafes in which I felt comfortable and certain cafes in which I didn't feel comfortable. And there are a lot of places in my house where I didn't feel comfortable. And I have finally come to a realization about the type of chair that I sit on. And now I'm like, oh, everything makes so much sense now. I write really well when I'm sitting on a cushy surface that um, where I have some good back support. Mm-hmm. So I'm really good on couches. Couches are the best because then you like sort of sink into them. I can cross my legs if I want to in like the half lotus position. If the couch is deep enough, I can, you know, whatever. So I need like a couch-like surface for my butt. I need a good pillow for my back so I can have good back support. And then I can write. <laughs> That is what I need. So if it's a couch at home, it's cool. If it's a couch, you know, or or like a booth type of situation at a cafe or a restaurant, it's cool. So like that's a thing that I need. Um, I need to have certain music, but I always keep that music on my phone or in my, my Google Music. I upload it there. And so I have that music and I know that like certain music is for certain different projects. So so that ritual. Um and I know that I have to do like some type of meditation before I write. And I also learned from author Andrea Hairston that you can activate the creative parts of your brain 
even if you are not a person who handwrites something um, as a first draft, like if you're a keyboard person for the first draft, she handwrites all her first drafts. But just the act of sitting down and writing something by hand opens up different parts in your brain that that then help you to like access those creative parts in your brain. So like before I sit down to write um, and and like do typing, I do what's called a scene outline, which comes from that blog post I talked about, the going from 2,000 to 10,000 words a day. I do scene outlining. I sometimes write uh, a, an exercise, a writing exercise. I'll do that by hand. I will sometimes just start writing the thing that I'm trying to write by hand just to get it flowing before I then switch and uh, start typing it on the computer. So all those things I can achieve no matter where I am, as long as the place where I am has like some of those, like it has the couch, it has the whatever. Um, <laughs> ridiculously enough, I started, I bought a table. It, it's like a DJ stand for a laptop. I thought it was going to be a lot thinner and lighter than it know. is, but it's not. But it's cool. So like I have been traveling with this table and it's adjustable because it, it's it's sort of like a tripod in the way that it works. And so it like collapses down. And so having a table that I know can be adjusted to the height that I need and is big enough for my computer and that I can just like, I can move around the house uh, where whatever house I'm staying in has made my writing life like a whole lot less anxious because then it means that I have like one stable thing, but that is also a portable thing. And so I travel with that table when I'm going anywhere, like when I'm when I'm actually moving from place to place. Like I don't travel with it if I'm just going to be gone for the weekend or for a week or something like that. I would love to put a link to that in the show notes because, uh, well, I I would love to look at it and maybe buy one myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for I will find the okay link. for me. Like I'm I'm still figuring this out as. I've kind of talked about, I'm still figuring out what this looks like for me, but I know I need to have a table, um, because I have, uh, I get like, I don't know if it's tendonitis or what in my, um, in my arms, if I type on my lap for too long. So if I'm holding a laptop on my lap and typing, um, it causes some, some kind of painful energy or injuries that take a couple of days to, uh, to alleviate. And so I, I can't, I need, I need that. I need, um, my husband and I joined a co-working space recently, which is great because they've got good chairs with good back support. Um, I've discovered that I need music. So I need to always have my headphones. We went yesterday as we were recording this, we went yesterday and I didn't get any work done because I forgot my headphones because I'd recorded a podcast the night before and I forgot to, to put the headphones back in my bag. And it kind of helps me to work in public because I'm embarrassed if, if people walk by and they see that I'm checking Facebook all the time. So it helps me to kind of work out where people can see kind of glance at my screen and see yep. that I'm not on social media, just like sitting there. That's right. Uh, so, so shame as a motivator is kind of important for me at this point in time. Um, yeah, but yeah, I'm still, I'm still working through that, uh, and, and figuring out what that looks like, which is, um, maybe a journey that, that you and I, dear listeners, and, uh, can go through together and figure out, uh, what works for us. But I know that that, that is a minimum. Like I need my electronics to be charged. I need a table. I need a chair that isn't going to make my back hurt, which is challenging because every chair makes my back hurt. And I need music of some sort. Um, Amazon has a, a playlist. If we say, Hey, you know, trash can cylinder play, uh, 
I think it's play some relaxing music. Uh, it comes up with a playlist that we really like. Um, and so that's actually what I have. I actually downloaded the atrocity that is the uh, Amazon music app onto my computer so that I can listen to that when I'm not at home. Um, so those are some things that seem to be working for me, but I know that I definitely need more things added into my routine. You need a couch. I, yeah. <laughs> one that isn't possessed by cats. Yes. <laughs> Or Satan, or Satan, you know, either one. No possessed in general, not not a thing. All right, well, I think that's it for today. I would like to thank Micah so much. He is such a lovely person. Um, story about how I met him. I was doing my my former podcast, Less Than or Equal, and he emailed me and said, "Hey, I want to come on your show." Um, and we've been friends ever since. So it was wonderful, and I'm so glad that he touched base with me. And uh, now I have a great friend um, who is happy go lucky and amazing, um, but is also a very smart, wonderful person to bounce. Um, ideas off of or, you know, send animal gifts to, you know, whatever. Um, But I'd like Micah to tell you where you can find him online so that you can, um, if this is your introduction to him, so that you can learn more about him. If you are looking for me online for my performing (laughs) or my writing for anything, you can go to www.chihuahua.coffee and you will find all the links that you need. Okay, I gotta say, he has two chihuahuas and he dotes on them. And I love that uh, the domain to get to his kind of portfolio is chihuahua.coffee. It's just also, dot coffee. Yeah. I didn't even know dot yeah, coffee was a thing. It's one of the new Man. the new TLDs that have come out in like the last, I don't know, six months or so. I feel like such an old internet person. <laughs> Back in my day, we only had dot com and dot Oh my gosh, we need to get Tempest.ninja. Oh my God. The dot ninja thing is a real thing. I don't know how much they cost, but I feel like we need to make this happen now. Yes. All right. Well, once again, I'd like to say thanks so much to Micah and thanks so much to my wonderful co-host, Tempest Bradford, for being here with me. And thank you, my wonderful co-host, Aline <laughs> Sims. Um, I would like to say we do have a Twitter account. So if you'd like to tell us what you need to do to get into creative flow, you can tweet at us. That's uh, at Originality FM, and that'll be linked to that in the show notes. And if you do us a favor, since we are such a new podcast, tell people about us um, so that they can start listening and, uh, and you know, we can, we can have have more people giving us feedback and ideas for, for shows and topics that you'd like to hear about. Please do so. Um, until next time, uh, stay creative. <laughs> we going to come up with a better outro in any minute now. <laughs> I want to leave this in because it's awful. But yeah. Awesome. 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 <laughs>